The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Prime Minister is asking my colleagues in Parliament to defend the indefensible. Four. I still think Boris is a survivor. I think he'll still fight the next election. And I have to say, I would think that if he did, he would still win. Three. What we want in this British democracy is a fair fight, don't we? Two. I just don't think Keir's got it. I really don't. He may be a very, very pleasant person and nice to animals and so on. Nice to animals. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily Alison Pearson, but Alison's on holiday. She's sunning her buns again. Standing in for her is the distinguished former Labour MP, now in the Lords, Kate Hoey. Great to have you with us, Kate. It's great to be on Planet Normal. Well, Kate, the cost of living crisis is tightening. Russia's just cut off gas supplies to two EU members, and we're on the cusp of local elections which could spark a change of Prime Minister. But apparently the most important issue in British politics, the subject of countless column inches, is the extent to which Boris Johnson does or doesn't look at Angela Rayner's legs. Leggate, if it isn't already called that, it soon will be. And indeed, Partygate have dominated political discourse at Westminster over the last week. But it does now seem as if Labour's Keir Starmer has moved on from office happy birthday sing-songs two years ago to matters of more immediate relevance. Namely, how millions of UK families are going to make ends meet. But he's only done so because another shadow cabinet member publicly insisted. It's all happening, Kate. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. The Northern Ireland Protocol, a subject you know backwards, is set to be scrutinised in the Supreme Court. But I know as a distinguished female parliamentarian, former MP for Vauxhall, now in the Lords, you also want to weigh in on Leggate. Well, honestly, Liam, I think the vast majority of the public will be saying, what on earth is this all about? And I've looked twice now at the, um, the video of the legs and uh, <laughs> I, I, I really can't understand that this was seen as a serious, not even just a four line page in a newspaper. It was a big story in one of our big newspapers. Now, I'm sure that Boris Johnson likes good legs. I mean, he obviously, you know, like most men do, don't they? Like somebody with good legs. Has he ever commented on your legs? No, but other people have. As the former Northern Ireland high jump champion. If I can't have good legs, then who can? (laughs) Anyway, seriously, this, I think it's a ridiculous story. Uh, I don't understand why it was seen as something, you know, made a, a, a big story, other than that it was meant to, obviously... I kind of worry whether it... Was it meant to damage... Uh, her, Angela Rayner, that she was the one who was deliberately kind of crossing her legs to annoy Boris, or was it meant to harm Boris, who was seen as just another kind of womanizer who was looking at people's legs? It's hard to know who planted it, isn't it? Because yeah. in the black arts of journalism, all the sources were anonymous. It was ascribed to a Tory Unattributable. MP. But but who knows? Who knows? Well, who knows if someone really did say that, or did they say something in a kind of half-jokey way the way one might do in a, you know, having a cup of coffee or a beer with somebody and you say something in a, a ridiculously funny way, but 
actually then it's taken seriously. So I genuinely don't know whether it happened, but it's just nonsense. And the idea, I think what's annoyed me most probably is the number of then sort of women feminists and all who've come out saying, oh, this is shocking, you know, this shows Westminster's are full of misogyny. This means that no young woman will ever think of going into politics. It's complete nonsense, complete nonsense. If, if some young woman is put off going into politics because of what she's read in the mail on Sunday about somebody supposedly looking at somebody's legs, then I don't think they're really suited for politics anyway. Now, that upset a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's never bothered me in saying, the past. Bring Alison back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Alison thinks about this, actually. It'll be interesting to hear. She will comment next week, no doubt. You are now out of the Commons. I know you really love being in the House of Commons, but you're really enjoying being in the House of Lords as well as a sort of non-aligned, independent peer. You spend a lot of time there scrutinising legislation. I know you take that role very, very seriously. But of course you keep your eye on the hurly-burly of the House of Commons and the Westminster Circus as a whole. How do you think it's going to pan out for Boris? You, of course, were a Labour MP, but you have famously friends right across the political spectrum. You talk to many, many people I know. Do you think he's going to survive? Do you think these local elections are going to really give him a punch in the ribs? I think the local elections are going to be bad for the Conservatives, but then it was likely to be not so good for them anyway because of what had happened at the last council elections and there are some seats that they're, you know, they were going to probably lose anyway, just the way local politics work. I still think Boris is a survivor. You know, I worked with him at City Hall when I was a sports commissioner for the time he was mayor. And he, it's very interesting, but I think when he's under pressure like that and he knows there's a lot of criticism, that's the time when he actually comes back out fighting and being more resolute. And I think he will have taken a huge amount of confidence, given him some much more confidence from the whole way that he's handled Ukraine, the way he's been lauded really by some people who would normally be his enemies. So I think it will boil down to the sort of normal suspected group who really don't want him, who've never wanted him, who've never liked him, who've hated Brexit, who've hated the fact that he got Brexit through, sort of. We'll come <laughs> to that. that. Um, <laughs> and we'll use any excuse to have a go at him. But, you know, it, it isn't even as if there's a, a wonderful challenger there who everyone's going to unite around so I cannot see it happening unless there's something terribly new comes out of the Sue Gray report but if it's clear that he really didn't intentionally mislead Parliament that's the crucial bit isn't it interesting that's what MPs really care about not so much the you know the party stuff and I don't think the public really care as much about misleading Parliament so it's a kind of they care more about the party bit but I do think that there will be some who will use it and want to get rid of him but I think he will still be there and I think he'll still fight the next election and I have to say I would think that if he did he would still win. Of course there are pockets of intense anger about Partygate out there among Mm. the public you know if your parent died and you had to curtail their funeral if your kid was getting married and the wedding was cancelled, if your kid was excluded, couldn't go to school and really suffered socially from that. Of course, you are really, really, really angry. I've always said that even though there are pockets of anger which will never go away, which are entirely justified, I think in the round, most people kind of expected people who work together to you know, share birthday cakes and have a sing-song, particularly 
if they're working round the clock in a very public service oriented context, be it in a hospital or be it in the fire service or be it indeed at the heart of government. Keir Starmer, I think, has taken the view up until quite recently that he could use his loyally skills to try and dismantle Boris Johnson at the dispatch box. But there's been signs that the shadow cabinet want him to move on. Lisa Nandy publicly made it known, or it was made known for her, that the shadow cabinet, she's a Wigan MP, she's former shadow foreign secretary, she's currently community secretary. She basically told her leader, can we start talking about the cost of living now rather than endless Westminster shenanigans? And indeed today, Wednesday, when we're recording Planet Normal, that was the thrust of what Keir Starmer questioned the Prime Minister on at PMQs. Do you think there is mileage in it for Keir Starmer to do the lawyer thing about Partygate, or do you think he should be talking about these bread and butter issues more? I think that Lisa Nandy is quite right, and I think it'll be more than Lisa Nandy saying this. You know, they're probably reflecting in their own constituencies, and they've had a break there for a while. Back listening to people who, yes, you're very right, there are some very angry people, particularly people who did lose families, and and they want to. You know, and rightly so. Yeah, of course, and it helps them to be able to kind of almost blame somebody. I understand that. But, you know, day by day, as we see prices rising and people's livelihoods more affected by the cost of living and what's happening, that's what's making people upset and angry. And that's getting back to Labour MPs. People are not going to elect a Labour government on the basis of Keir Starmer, you know, forensic legal attack or analysis of what Boris did or did not do during lockdown. By the time the election comes, it's quite a long time away from when those parties happen. So I think they will not win the election. They've got to get to the real issues and start coming off, you know, start coming up with genuine policies. And also they might start by defining what a woman is because they can't really talk about misogyny, can they, when they don't know what a woman is. I wanted to ask you directly, Kate, you, you were in the Labour Party for many, many years. You fought and won as a Labour MP. You were a Labour minister. I know the Labour Party means a great deal to you, even though you've often fallen out with the Labour Party. Is Keir Starmer electable? Is he Kinnock or is he Blair? I think if I'm being honest, I would say he was sort of halfway between. (laughs) He hasn't got the sort of charisma that whatever you thought of Neil Kinnock's behaviour and the way he acted, he did have a kind of charisma by talking to people and chatting. There was electricity in the room when Kinnock was in the room. That's undeniable. Absolutely. Yeah. So he doesn't have that. I mean, I don't think Keir would even try to say he had. Uh, And then he's, I don't think he's got the, I just don't think he comes across with that vision, even if you don't agree with some of the things that Tony Blair did and, and the way he did it. He had an air about him that made people feel he knew what he was doing. Mm. Didn't work out for him in the end because of the big issue of the Iraq war. Really, really blew his legacy. But no, Keir is not. I mean, it's difficult to say. I still do care a lot about Labour and I, particularly those people, those genuine people across the country who stuck with Labour through thick and thin, you know, and felt very let down by Labour but still wanted to support them. I don't think that they will see in Keir Starmer someone who is going to really give them what they feel, you know, the whole way that Labour should be doing things. I just don't think Keir's got it. I really don't. He, He may be a very, very pleasant person and you know, nice to animals and so on. But I just genuinely don't think that he's... he's nice got, he's to got animals. 
it's hardly statesman. I mean, you know, obviously, you don't want somebody who's horrible to animals. But no, no, no. Sort of bu- no, it's, it's an expression, Bullet, bullet isn't point it? three. It's an expression. I don't mean it. <laughs> I don't mean it that other politicians go around being unkind to animals. Kate, you and I, we've spoken about politics for many years. I met you when I was a young political correspondent on the Financial Times and you were at the height of your power. You were a minister in Tony Blair's government, a sports minister. You had your dream job. And I think what you and I have in common is what we want in this British democracy is a fair fight, don't we? You were obviously a Labour MP for many years, but you've always been a kind of cross-party person, somebody who cares really about the debate rather than the tribe. And, And I think I'm similar. So let me ask you this. Do you agree with me that if Keir Starmer is really going to make a connection in those red wall seats where Labour has become so detached from its core supporter base, do you think he should make a speech apologising for trying to reverse Brexit? I mean, that's the reason I left the Labour Party was when they changed their policy on the referendum and wanted a second referendum. And having said they would listen to the to the vote and respect the vote. I don't think Labour has really come to terms with the fact that we've left the EU and their role in trying to stop it, particularly in Parliament. Just recently, I was at a lecture by David Frost, the former Brexit minister, talking very honestly about what... Tipped as a future prime minister, as some, well, by some. I think, yes, could, could, well, no, I don't think so. But anyway, <laughs> he, he was talking very honestly about what had happened and why it happened and why we got into the protocol and all of that. And one of the things that came out of that was just the absolutely crucial part that the, the Ben Amendment on stopping us ever being able to have a to walk away with no deal with no deal Hillary Ben yep. son of Tony Ben who of course himself didn't want us to I get know. into the European I'm, economic community in the first place I know it's interesting very in, and his brother now is in the Lords Earl Stansgate has now come in the eldest anyway we're not talking about the Ben dynasty but seriously I think that that was led by Labour in, backed up, of course, by Lib Dems and a few few of those conservatives who were determined to stop us leaving. And that, I think, has tarnished Labour and will always tarnish them until there is an acceptance, as you said, that we were wrong, we shouldn't have done it, and we actually were w- working against democracy. Even though Labour fought that general election on a manifesto pledge to respect the vote of the referendum, and then they completely reverse that. For me, I think I think he should stand up and apologise. A lot of people I know on the Labour front bench agree with me, but won't go public. Quite a few vehemently are opposed. But for me, I think that it showed the tendency of one part of the support base that Labour needs to win an election, disdaining the other part. Of course, the first part is the professional urban progressive class, the lawyers, the university lecturers, the people in the university towns who are professionals who feel they want to be part of the Labour Party because they want to do good in the world and they don't like the Conservatives for whatever reason. And then, of course, you have Labour's traditional manual working base, very proud groups of people, families that have literally voted Labour for generations. A lot of them abandoned Labour. They voted for the Brexit party, didn't they, in the European election that ousted Theresa May. They voted Boris Johnson in December 19. They lent the Tories their votes, as the Prime Minister indeed said. But if the professional class part of the Labour Party's support 
can't learn to respect the rest of Labour Party support, who, of course, have a vote and they vote based on their experiences and their sympathies. And, you know, they may not be as educated, but that doesn't mean they're, they're stupid or less intelligent in any sense. I don't know about you. Some of the cleverest people I know are the least educated. But if Labour can't bring themselves, the professional class, to say we were wrong, we were overbearing, we made a mistake, we disdained you... Then they're never going to win again. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. And that's and terrible I, for democracy. But it's almost as if the the sort of establishment part of Labour still feel that they did the right thing and that they knew better. And it was sort of pity that all these other people, these poor people who didn't really understand how wonderful the EU was and that it would have been much better to stay in, blah, blah, blah. And I just think that Keir still deep down, I mean, after he was our Europe minister, you know, he is he is a Europhile. He is a Europhile. And it's very difficult for Europhiles to really accept that what happened has happened and is not going to be reversed and is going to be in the interest of the country. But if he's going to be leader of a Labour Party that is going to win back those seats, he has to actually mean that he believes that we were wrong. And unless he says that and comes out, no one really will think that they've changed and will always think that if there's another Labour government, will they then start trying to find ways of bringing us back into the fold, you know, wanting to get back into the customs union and the single market and all of that. Absolute chaos. I think you acted very honourably during those wars in the House of Commons. Oh, they were dreadful. 2016, 2019. Mm. Yourself, Frank Field, who's a great friend of both of ours, Graham Stringer, Labour MP there up in the northwest. But you guys were... Brexit voters who were determined to make sure that vote went through. There's another strand of what was then the Parliamentary Labour Party who I equally admire. People like Caroline Flint, people like my friend and colleague at GB News, Gloria De Piero, who were Remainers, they're instinctively completely pro-Remain. And yet when they realised that the Labour Party leadership was trying to dismantle a vote which their constituents had backed to leave the European Union, they, they thought, this is mental. This is absolutely mad. I have a huge amount of respect for Caroline Flint and I thought it was one of the worst results in the last general yeah, election. I agree. If Caroline had been re-elected in her constituency, I think she would have been a very, very top contender she could to led, be a led, yeah, led yeah, party. She could have led the party. She has got common sense to her... Integrity. Yep. Yeah. And she, in the end, you know, lost a lot of her own close friends in Parliament yeah. because of the way she spoke out and stood up for what she knew her constituents wanted. So, uh, you know, the damage that has been done by the whole way that Labour handled us leaving the European Union will live with the party for many, many years. And that's why I, I genuinely feel that there's, it's very, very unlikely that there'll be a Labour government for another, at least another election after next. Kate, we can't have you here on the planet Normal Rocket without talking about Northern Ireland. We've just learned that the protocol is going to be the subject of a case in the Supreme Court. We're also seeing signs that the government may include in the Queen's speech legislation to scrap the protocol. And I know that's something that you desperately want to happen. Yes, I mean, the protocol uh, was signed up to as part of the withdrawal agreement as a way of getting Brexit done. There was huge opposition to getting Brexit done in Parliament. The European Union was doing everything it could to stop it happening. And I've listened to Lord Frost talk about how this was the only 
the only way they could do it. Within the protocol, it talks about it. It was never designed to be permanent, actually. And also, I think the government genuinely thought the EU wouldn't be so ridiculously stupid as to try and, you know, treat Northern Ireland, that tiny amount of trade that goes over the border into the EU, as more dangerous than some other part of the rest of the EU with a country outside the EU. So now it has, it is, it, the aim of it was to protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The Belfast Good Friday Agreement has been broken by it because the East-West relationship is no longer working. Trade is being stopped and the issue of consent, which was absolutely crucial. And Lord Tremble himself, Nobel Peace Prize winner, major figure in the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, as you and I would agree, you know, as was John Hume, as was Tony Blair. He said that that's, that's what made he people... Had, he, he, he won a court case, didn't he? Yeah. Saying that it broke the Good Friday Agreement, the protocol, because it changed the constitutional arrangements in Northern Ireland without a referendum. Absolutely. And the, uh, the reason many pro-union people went in and voted yes at that big referendum which we had, which I'm, I think you were involved in, came over to watch. That they That's accepted, in 1998 uh, for the Belfast, yeah, for the Belfast Agreement. 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 I was reporting it for the FT. That's right. And they, they voted, keeping their eyes shut, really, because they knew that it was letting out prisoners, that it was doing all sorts of things to reward terrorists but did it because they thought, ah, at last we've got a situation where nothing can change in Northern Ireland's relationship with the United Kingdom until there is a vote and has to, and that everything working in the Assembly would be cross-community. And the only thing that's been changed on the cross-community aspect is the fact that in 2024, if there's still a protocol, and I hope there isn't, there will be a vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly, but it won't be on the basis of cross-community consent. They took that out at the demand of the Irish government at the negotiations, you know, when the EU was putting them up against this wall of date that they had to finish by, and that was accepted. So over and over so again... So it's a vote it's, within the Assembly in the rather assembly, than a, yes, a referendum. Rather than it being a cross-community. In other words, if the unionist side really, really dislikes something, they can stop it. If the nationalists really, really dislike something, they can stop it. It's part of the kind of artificial machinery of Northern Ireland government, which is there has to be mandatory coalition. People talk a bit about, oh, there'll be a first a Sinn Féin first minister. Actually, Sinn Féin have been in power just as much as the DUP have over the last... Because it's, it's a shared government. You know, Arlene Foster or Geoffrey Donaldson couldn't have written anything. Whoever was the leader of the First Minister couldn't without this, the deputy agreeing. So it, it, it's a very artificial... It's not normal. <laughs> not like planet normal. It's not normal <laughs> politics in Northern Ireland. But the government has accepted, and I understand that the Prime Minister really believes now that enough's enough. They've waited far, far too long. They've kept talking about doing Article 16 you could invoke but even that's gone past leave, it now just, we just yeah. we just have to take the bullet in the hand which is probably the funny way of putting it and go in and legislate and of course the Ukraine situation and our brilliant relationship with some of those other EU countries not France and Germany but the others that have been you know Poland and Hungary and some of those countries that have been very good that I think that changes the whole dimension to of how we'll be thought of and if the more sympathy, I, more the sympathy within, yeah they might the yeah EU. and they'll say well hang on is this really the most important issue anymore Let's, you know, we can't keep the next five years talking about the protocol let's sort it kate you forget every day more about northern ireland politics than i've ever known you're completely steeped in it you're a recognized expert in northern ireland politics but i have kept a close eye on it over the years as you know i'm an irish citizen i've got a lot of family in both the republic and in the north from both of the main 
communities and that's been you know the basis of our, our friendship over many years discussing it trying to resolve it and i've always seen you know the, the backstop as it was and of course the difference between the protocol and the backstop is that we can vote ourselves or legislate ourselves out of the protocol we had to rely on the eu to let us escape the backstop and that was the great concession that david frost won that i don't think there's enough recognition of that why the protocol for all its downsides is so much better than the backstop I've always thought that the backstop, the whole notion that you needed all these special controls to regulate trade between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, that you couldn't use authorised economic operator schemes behind the border checks, all that stuff. The idea it was such a huge deal was always, for my money, on the heart, behalf of the EU, a cynical hoax. Oh, it was a political ploy backed up by the Irish government. And remember, the Irish government had their own view that they could say things and they were involved and then they were there as part of the EU. So they had a kind of double whammy. And one of the things I do feel is that, you know, before we got the Taoiseach Varadka in, Enda Kenny had been discussing, allowed his officials to discuss with British officials, Northern Ireland... You know, they knew there was going to be an issue. There had to be some kind of special arrangement, but it could have been an arrangement that was sorted with goodwill. The Irish government saw it as a way of getting an economic United Ireland and also that it was annoying the Brits and, you know, they don't like the Brits even though we're actually very good to them. And I think a lot of Irish people like the Brits. I do. They're, they're, well, certainly all the Irish who are in my constituency have been there for 40, 50 years but you there know, is so certainly a tendency among the political class to bash the, the Brits. And I say this as an Irish person and, a, and an English British person. But it could be sorted, Liam. You're right. It there could is, totally it be, could sorted. be sorted. And I think if the EU had any sense at all. Enough. Would... We've left. Stop tormenting ah, us. You've left Northern Ireland. <laughs> the EU, the Commission, is messing with that precious Good Friday agreement. Yeah. It's messing with and if it breaks, all the work that the likes of you and David Trimble and John Hume and Seamus Mallon and everyone did across all the communities. It would be very difficult to recreate that too. Absolutely. And for my money, it is right to end this now. And of course, people will scream and say, you're breaking international law and all the rest of it, even though we're not because the protocol does have Article 16 in it. And I think you're right. Ender Kenny's a, a, a Mayo man. He's from a different generation. He understands, you know, dealing with unionism, dealing with unionists. And the Northern Ireland backstop was not an issue. The protocol was not an issue until, of course, Theresa May lost her majority. It all goes back to her. And became dependent on the DUP and... The EU saw its opportunity to But remember also, Liam, I mean, the EU really wanted us to stay in the customs union and the uh, of course. And, and they thought this they was get a way of getting us into they, it. Yeah. They get money when we're yeah. in the customs union. When we're in the customs union, everything we import from outside the EU, our people pay tariffs on the things that we import from outside the EU and the majority of that money goes to Brussels. I think on the overall Brexit issue, I think the government has to come out much more you know, almost campaigning again on how how leaving has helped us. That's right. They because have to get some are, yeah. Brexit wins in order because to demonstrate why we left. Because people like Lord Adonis blame everything on Brexit, even the weather. <laughs> True. They, honestly, seriously, haven't they? Anyone say that COVID was only caused because we left the EU because they couldn't do that because, of course, it was all over the world. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast. Mine! 
I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street. Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics, from London Mayor Sadiq Khan to leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Climbing aboard the capsule of common sense this week is the Conservative MP for Forest of Dean, Mark Harper. Mark's been in the Commons since 2005, and he was Chief Whip, the government's enforcer in Parliament, in 2015 and 2016. More recently, Mark Harper was chairman of the Covid Recovery Group of MPs, which did important work holding the government to account during lockdown. Last week, Mark declared in the Commons that he no longer supports Boris Johnson. He wants his Prime Minister to resign. I started by observing that he must have thought long and hard before he made that decision. I did, and people that have heard what I've said over the last few months know that I was absolutely prepared and have been for some time to allow the Prime Minister to be judged on the facts, which is what he perfectly reasonably, I think, asked for. And I do think, and I said this to several people who wanted me to come to a conclusion earlier, I do think if you're talking about making a decision about potentially changing the Prime Minister. That is quite a big deal, and it's right, therefore, to have all the facts at your disposal. But for me, the fact that the Metropolitan Police concluded that he'd broken the law and he's accepted their verdict because he's paid the fine, he hasn't challenged it, I think that's very bad in itself and something that's not acceptable. The fact that there are over 50 fines been issued in Downing Street to date in the heart of government is a problem. It suggests that there was a culture there which was also the Prime Minister's responsibility. And taking both of those things together, I've come to the conclusion that I don't see how you could not reach the conclusion that he misled Parliament. And if you take all of those things together, that is why I think he needs to go and why I said what I said last week. You are a very experienced parliamentarian. You've been in the House since 2005 and you were Chief Whip in 2015 and 2016. How much harder is it to be so publicly against your Prime Minister having been Chief Whip? Well, it is very difficult. Politics is a team game. It's not an individual sport. And you're always very conscious when you stand up and say things that, you know, my natural instinct is support the team captain, as it were, and to support all of my colleagues. And the reason why I think there's a tension there is I think the Prime Minister is asking my colleagues in Parliament and I think indeed the many thousands of decent men and women who campaign for the Conservative Party up and down the country, many of whom are at the moment trying to get Conservative councillors elected or re-elected, he's asking them effectively to defend the indefensible and asking decent people to have to try and say that certain things were okay when they weren't And actually, my view is, I think if you're the team captain, you shouldn't ask your people to do that. If you've got into a terrible mess, you need to get out of it. You shouldn't be asking your people to wade through the mud to try and get you out of a mess of your own making. 
Now, I should tell you that Alison and I are big fans of yours. She, in particular, Mark, thinks you're a natty dresser. She likes a dapper Tory, as she often says on Planet Normals. But we both really noticed your work during the COVID pandemic. You are a qualified accountant. And I think you, Mark, like Alison and myself, as chairman of the COVID recovery group of backbench Tory MPs, you really did get into the detail of COVID. I want to look forward now to the public inquiry. We know that Baroness Hallett, the retired judge, will be chairing this public inquiry. The terms of reference have just come to an end. When's it likely to begin and how long do you think it will last? Well, I think the chair of the inquiry has set out her terms of reference. I don't know where she'll conclude on them. But certainly when I read them and Steve Baker and myself, my deputy chair of the COVID recovery group, we wrote to her to say what we thought about the terms of reference, which were very broad. And they look at not just the operational aspects of it, but they also look at the things that I don't think were perfect. And I think you'll probably agree with me on how decisions were made, the use of data, how things were weighed up properly, whether Parliament was properly involved and all of those sorts of issues, as well as individual decisions. She set those out. She's asked for feedback on them. We've written back to say we thought they were very good and we've emphasised the areas which we think should be looked at. And Steve and I have both said that in due course, if she wishes us to give evidence, we're very happy to do that in whichever way is most helpful to the inquiry. As to when it's going to kick off, I don't know is the honest answer. I know she wants to do a proper job and these things don't you know, happen very quickly. My guess would be she set out the terms of reference. She's going to consider the feedback on those. She'll presumably set out the final terms in the next couple of months. And then I'd have thought later this year, early next, I would have thought in terms of taking evidence, she'll want to balance thoroughness, but also doing it at a pace which those people particularly impacted by it will want it to go. And there's a balance there. And, and she's a very experienced judge and a very experienced chair of these things. So I've got very full confidence in the way she'll run the process. I hope that Baroness Hallett takes evidence from the COVID recovery group, even from yourself, because I think when we look back, even just a few months, I think Boris is now reaping credit amidst all these other brickbats being thrown at him for getting the big decisions right on COVID. I don't think he would have got the big decisions right on COVID without the pressure from you and other members of the COVID recovery group. I think lockdown would have lasted much longer. It wasn't that the Prime Minister held his nerve bringing us out of lockdown, as Alison and I often say on Planet Normal. He had his nerve held for him by the likes of you and other CRG members. Do you think the CRG will be involved in the public inquiry? Well, I very much hope so. I mean, just going backwards in reverse order, if you like, I don't know for certain what would have happened at earlier stages. But just this last winter period, having spoken now to a number of ministers and those involved in decision making, I am as sure as I can be, that if we hadn't before Christmas delivered that rebellion of 101 Conservative MPs against vaccine passports, if we hadn't done that, then I'm absolutely convinced that the government would have lost its nerve over Christmas and we would have ended up maybe not with a lockdown, but certainly with restrictions coming back, which would have been a massive hit to businesses, to our children and their education. And then we would have been in a position of high cases, not 
causing a huge problem, but in a big argument about how quickly we should have come out of it. And we know Labour would have gone along with it because they'd signalled that they would have been happy to do so. So we'd have been sort of back where we started. So I'm certain about that. Earlier stages, I think the questions we asked... I accept that not everyone will have agreed with us, although interestingly, a lot more people now agree with us than agreed with us at the time. <laughs> you know, it was tough asking some of these questions. One of the reasons I think I've been taken the firm position I have about the Prime Minister is I had ministers, including him, over and over again tell me we had to follow these rules. They had to be in law, not guidance. They had to be followed or people would die. And when I had the temerity to ask some questions, I think perfectly sensible questions about them and challenge some of the modelling that we now know turned out to be not correct, it was briefed out by government to newspapers that I wanted to kill tens of thousands of people, which was rather offensive, complete nonsense, just because I was doing my job properly, holding ministers to account. And I think that is the job of a member of parliament. And sometimes you have to do it and say what you think is right, even when it's uncomfortable. And perhaps that's why I've ended up where I have now, is that, you know, I did have to stand up and say things when it wasn't popular, when actually the polls were suggesting that the public were happy with lockdowns and tough rules, and the Labour Party was absolutely nowhere to be found. The leader of the opposition sort of forgot what his job was, which was to ask difficult questions and challenge the government. And it was basically the COVID recovery group doing that work. So... You know, I am pleased that we did that. And it would be useful, I think, to lay some of that out for the public inquiry. And so, as I said, Steve and I have offered to Baroness Hallett to give evidence, whether that's in writing or giving oral evidence and being questioned by her expert QCs. I will leave that up to her as the chair of the inquiry to judge how best to do it. We wanted to make it clear to her that we were very happy to come and give evidence. That's very gracious of you, Mark, if I may say so. For my money, you should certainly be giving evidence. Other senior members of the CRG should certainly be giving evidence. Do you begrudge those now who are trying to airbrush from history the fact that they were so vehemently pro-lockdown at every turn, faster, firmer, longer? Now they're talking about, oh, the terrible collateral damage of lockdown. There's a lot of history being rewritten here, isn't there? Yes, I think there is. And I think there's a positive thing in the sense I'm to some extent not bothered because I think we were right about a lot of these things in just asking for these things to be considered, you know, the impact on business, the impact on children, the impact on wider education, the impact on young people. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that a lot of those costs are actually really quite significant and weren't properly weighed up when decisions were being taken. I think on what people did or didn't say in the past, I think actually one thing I am quite heartened about is that because of the way social media works and that when people said things, there's a record of it. And it's certainly if you're an elected person, you can't delete it without somebody, you know, having tracked it and sort of logged it away somewhere. When the public inquiry happens, people that try and rewrite history, I think are going to get found out. And I think those people who are only just now spotting the difficulties, when they try and pretend that that was their view all along, you know, I think people like you in the media, you know, great publications like The Telegraph are going to sort of catch them out and they're going to be found one thing. And I think the fact that some of us, you two and me and Steve and our colleagues in Parliament were prepared to raise these concerns when it wasn't popular, I think that will stand us in good stead. And I think that's our job. You know, your job as journalists, my job as a politician, that is our job to hold 
ministers to account. And I'm very content that, you know, whatever individual mistakes I may have made, I was doing what I'm paid to do. And I was doing it to the best of my ability. And I think history will look at what we did and judge that we got it about right. The political and media class, of course, a lot of this public inquiry will be about process. He said, she said, going through the entrails and rightly so. But what the public really cares about, Mark, is what the public inquiry concludes in terms of future policy, whether or not we would go for a knee jerk lockdown the next time some kind of covid virus comes along. I was particularly heartened that you had people who were absolutely at the heart of the lockdown policy at the time. People like then Vaccines Minister, now Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi, having the guts and the good grace to say, I think it was a mistake to lock down schools. That was quite a big statement by him, wasn't it? It was, actually. And I think, actually, I was very impressed by how he conducted himself through the process. He was prepared to take risks. He was very open and honest. And the tone that he used to engage in debate, he was not one of those who tried to shut down questions or, you know, suggest that people asking them were wanting to let it rip and kill tens of thousands of people. He had a very open and engaging approach. And I think now he's become education secretary. He's seen the damage that was done to young people and the difficulties they had. I had a conversation with a lot of young people in Gloucestershire, which is where my constituency is, organised by the Bishop of Gloucester. And listening to a lot of the kids, they'd had some really tough experiences during lockdown. And for some of them, it was absolutely fine. But some of them, it had been really tough. Mm. And I think we're going to see a legacy of that. I think we're going to see a big legacy in the health service. It's going to take years for the health service to recover. And I hope that that lesson is that lockdowns shouldn't be used again. I certainly think the lesson about not putting everything into the law, I'd be much happier in future if we laid out for people what the facts were about any future disease and gave people good guidance and let people judge for themselves how to balance the risks against essential things they had to do. And the evidence was the public are perfectly capable of doing this and they're able to weigh up these things. And for me, the thing that's going to stick in my mind all the way through, which I think was a massive mistake, and if I had to tell myself off for anything, it's that I didn't jump on it earlier. How we ever said, ever, that somebody should be forced to die alone and not have their closest family with them at the end of their life. I just don't think that is something we should ever have done and I hope never do again in the future. And I think we should have let people make their own judgments about spending time with their loved ones, the risks that pose to themselves and let them make the judgment about whether they were prepared to do that or not, not have the state do it for them. There are certain things about people's relationships which you have to let them decide. And I hope that we end up with a much more sensible conversation at any future event. And we have said to Baroness Haller, one of the things we want her to do is look at the legislation here. And I think the thing for ministers, I'm happy for ministers to have wide powers in emergencies. I think that's appropriate. But I think they should always be tested by Parliament. And ministers should only be able to make rules for very short periods of time without having to come to Parliament and account for themselves and have Parliament have to approve them. And I think we need to make some changes to the Public Health Act. I think that ought to be one of the things that the inquiry recommends at the end of it. We had Professor Mark Woolhouse on The Rocket quite recently. He's just written a book, 
the year the world went mad. There was a bit of that, wasn't there, Mark Harper, a sense in which the political and media class went mad? I think collectively there was a lot of that, actually, and to some extent we can see at a bit of a distance what it looks like because if we look at what the Chinese government are doing at the moment, where they still have what I think is a fundamentally misconceived zero COVID policy and they've just locked down Shanghai and we're now seeing panic buying in Beijing because they're now testing people for COVID and people in Beijing think that that city is going to get locked down. They've been literally locking buildings, locking people in their homes, putting fences around people's homes and literally imprisoning people at a time when we have perfectly good vaccines, which mean that COVID is something that we can live with. And I think if we look at that and we now look at the Chinese and think this is mad, if we just step back a bit, it wasn't so very different what we were doing, you know, not that long ago. So I think actually there is a period where it says However difficult things are, however much something is an emergency, it is right, it's always right for members of parliament and journalists to ask questions and to challenge people. That should never be wrong and you should never be chastised for doing it. If people don't agree with you, they should come back at you with facts and argument and debate. We shouldn't try and shut things down. And there was a sense during COVID that if you dared challenge the status quo or challenge what was being said, you weren't met with some factual discussion. You were met with the idea that you were trying to kill people and you were casual with people's lives. And that certainly wasn't the case. I always took COVID incredibly seriously, but I always felt that there were other things that were going to have a consequence. And what you had to do was balance them and not only look at one side of the equation. And that's what we argued all the way through. And I think that lesson is the one that should stick with people. At the end of this interview, Mark, rather than asking you for a prediction about the upcoming local elections or asking you whether or not you want to be the Prime Minister, because, of course, all MPs want to be Prime Minister somewhere in their soul. I'm going to ask you this. Alison and I have always thought of you as a very planet-normal person. You're from a modest, working-class background. Your father was a manual worker. You got yourself to Oxford from a comprehensive school. You've been successful in business, and now you're an MP. What is it in your background that makes you tick and makes you act the way you do as a parliamentarian? I suppose, actually, it comes back to the way I was brought up. It might sound slightly old-fashioned, but I think my parents brought me up in a way that reflects how I act now. I was always brought up because there were no expectations in my family. You know, there was no automatic sense that I would go to university and become a member of parliament or any such thing. I'm the first person in my family to go to university and and certainly the first person to go into parliament. I was always taught to do my best, do the right thing. And I hope whatever I've done in parliament, I don't take being in parliament for granted. I can't see the point of being a member of parliament if you don't try and make a difference. There's no point just going along with what the crowd think. If you think something's right, we're very lucky we have a platform and an ability to say so. So I've always tried to do what I think is right, do the right thing. And ultimately, as a Member of Parliament, you've got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and think, it may not have worked out, maybe it doesn't always work out well for one personally, but you've got to do the right thing. And if at the end of my career, whatever I've achieved, if people turn around and say, he always did the right thing, he tried to stand up for what was right, then I think I'll be very happy with that. And I hope Mum and Dad will be proud of me. That's a great note to end. Mark Harper, thanks so much for joining us here on Planet Normal. 
Thanks very much. He's an impressive guy, isn't he, Kate? Were you surprised when he stood up as he did last week and told the Prime Minister to go? Well, I suppose, yes, it you know it came out of the blue in a, for me in a way, but at the same time, when you listen to him there and actually you realise just how, for what a long time he was on his own, really, with a few others in Parliament speaking out against some of the COVID stuff, that inevitably, because of how strongly he felt about that, what is being alleged about Downing Street and the Prime Minister really would stick in his throat, wouldn't it? He did feel passionately that the policies were wrong based on the wrong advice and all of that. I I was impressed by that interview. I suppose, really, I hadn't heard him speak an awful lot or had an awful lot to do with him. And, you know, you don't tend to, as a Labour MP, have much to do with Conservative chief whips. I thought he came across as someone who certainly wasn't doing it for publicity purposes or for any kind of career purposes he was doing it as he more or less said at the end because it was the right thing to do for him for me the most important political point that came out of that was how warmly he spoke about Nadim Sahawi who is somebody with an increasingly high profile he was the vaccines minister he's now the education secretary Nadim Sahawi came out quite recently and was the first person, I think, from that inner core of government, of decision makers during lockdown to say, I think it was a mistake to lock down schools. And as the incumbent education secretary, I thought that was a big move by Nadim Zahawi. It strikes me, though, Kate, that we're, if we didn't have Russia-Ukraine going on, if we didn't have this cost of living crisis the scope, the terms of reference, the timing of this public inquiry would be front and centre of our newspapers every single day because there is so much at stake. I'm still not convinced that as a political and media class and a country as a whole, we aren't still in the position that if there was another pandemic that we wouldn't instantly return to lockdown. And in the end, The public inquiry shouldn't be about finger pointing and he said, she said and who's to blame and was there misleading and should that person resign? Though Inevitably it will be because it will be political. It should be about what lessons have we learned and what do we do next time? That's what the public wants it to focus on. Are you convinced that that's what it will focus on? Well, I think you're right that it should. The media then winding up the the public will actually want to have, you know, they'll want a figurehead or a group of people that they can say, yes, it was them. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been in this situation. But I think if people are really honest, they realise we were in a very unknown situation, certainly something that this generation and the previous generation hadn't gone through. And people were quite frightened. uh, And we were made to be more frightened by the way it was handled at a government level and you know then you can give excuses for why they felt it was important to keep us sort of frightened but I think people like Mark and some of the others who spoke out so bravely early on I mean Alison herself and people who wrote articles about why we were doing it in this way there will be not more. anti-vax, hmm? not COVID no, no, deniers, no, not, no COVID deniers, but, not, just, and, but just wondering just about the collateral was, damage yeah, of lockdown. And what lockdown was going to do, not just to the economy, but to the whole psyche of how the country felt. And it's going to take a long, long time to get over that. And of course, even the Prime Minister recently wasn't prepared to say we will never have another lockdown. And, you know, when I look at these pictures and hear those screams of people locked up in Shanghai, which sound absolutely horrific, 
And then you think, how could they ever have done that? Or how could they do that? And then you think back to, well, do you remember the days of nobody on the streets and literally being frightened to go out and kiss? Do you remember the days of, of two mums having a coffee on a bench, that, being arrested? Yeah, and the helicopter following. Do you remember the, the days of students getting fined thousands of pounds mm. for being students? Mm. But th- what people will want to come out of the inquiry to is just the way the NHS or whoever within handled the elderly people leaving and going into care homes and that whole aspect. But And also I think what Mark said was quite important there that you know he recognises, as I think more and more people are recognising, that while we all went out and clapped the NHS and you know they did a wonderful job, people are working at the sharp end, there is real problems with our National Health Service and it's going to be have to be something that people are prepared to discuss in an open, honest way that doesn't get you labelled as being, oh, they must be some nasty right-wing Tory who wants to privatise everything because the National Health Service cannot keep having money just thrown at it if we're not clear that the outcomes are still getting better from that money, if they're just going into some bottomless hole and I think that he would actually probably make a very good Secretary of State for Health Spoken like the independent peer of the realm (laughs) that you are (laughs) Now on to our listener emails please keep your wonderful messages coming keep writing to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk we love reading them we learn so much from you and of course Alison steals lots of the ideas for her Telegraph column sorry co-pilot This is from Jill. Dear Alison and Liam, I listen with interest and enjoyment each week. I've learnt to get listening quickly because the story changes so quickly between Thursday and Saturday. What happened to a week being a long time in politics? I've been listening with increasing frustration and, dare I say, boredom to the partygate shenanigans, says Jill. I keep waiting for someone to remind the great British public that the government was, as it said it would, following the science. I can remember sitting in the car just before that first dreadful lockdown, thank heaven we didn't know it wasn't just going to be for three weeks, and feeling relieved that someone who understood what was going on would have their hand on the tiller. Little did we know, months of the Brothers of Doom following with their dodgy slides and their clever knack of scaring the country into submission. What was Boris supposed to do? We know he was anti-lockdown from the start, but he didn't stand a chance. He was told, we submit the data, you make the rules. I don't hold a very big candle up to our beleaguered Prime Minister, but after all this time, I'm still not sure what he was supposed to do with the information he was being given. I'm surprised he's still standing. I love Planet Normal, so entertaining, informative, amusing. I don't need to say to you both to keep it coming. I know you just always do. Best wishes, Jill. Well, I've got one. Sheila says... Oh, heavens, I'm so sick of seeing that windbag smarmy starmer and the odious Blackford whining on and on and on, all for political gain. The rules were wrong, and to be honest, we broke them at times to save our sanity. The government were working together in the same offices. I don't blame them for having a cup of tea and a piece of cake for a break. Lots of other workers were doing exactly the same in their places of work. Boris, in the end, thank goodness, saw the light and stopped listening to the dreadful sage bunch and our lives have now moved on this is from jeff i'm an avid listener of your podcast and have listened since inception i'm writing to suggest that an investigation may be interesting into the way gp practices are funded 
The main payment to a practice is called the global sum and is based on a weighted sum for every patient on the patient's list. The so-called Carr-Hill formula is used to apply these weightings which account for factors such as age and gender. The key point is that income received depends on how many patients are on the practice list and does not relate in any way to the number of visits or indeed telephone conversations. Interestingly, I'm aware of a number of instances of individuals on the patient list for whom the GP practice receives income who are not resident in this country and obviously never see their GP. It makes me wonder also if there aren't deceased patients on the list as well. Yours sincerely, Jeff. Well, this one is from Steve, and he says, The amount of posturing and moralising hypocrisy that is being displayed in Parliament is sickening. Yes, the PM did wrong, but he can't bring people back from the dead, and to somehow use the terrible stories of people suffering on their own, each one almost competing to be the most heart-rending, is appalling. All the MPs voted with the lockdown restrictions, and that was the reason, and they're acting as if Boris was responsible for the deaths. No, he wasn't. Any more than anyone getting a fixed penalty for a motoring offence is responsible for all the deaths and accidents on the roads. The opposition have got no ideas for dealing with Britain's present problems, so they use valuable parliamentary time to spout verbal diarrhoea. Thank goodness Starmer's not in charge. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Kate, as honoured stand-in co-host... Oh, I think Steve has to get it because I think... You like a bit of verbal diarrhoea? I like the verbal diarrhoea and I like the moralising and posturing which goes on in Parliament. So I Steve, think you've got it. you've won! You've won email of the week. A cover to plant normal mug, rare has hen's teeth, rare as rocking horse poo is yours. Just email us, plantnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject strap mug winner with your postal address and that mug will be winging its way to you. And as we leave our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. (laughs) 